Well, good morning. It's, yeah, it's been about a year since my, my wife, Rebecca, and I were here at uh, the Agassiz campus. And uh, I have to say, <clears throat> last time we were here, uh, the worship, it actually left a, a bit of an impression on me. I just really appreciate this sort of small church feel that, that's going on here. I, I don't know, I can't really uh, put that into words, but I, I just had the same feeling here uh, as we were worshiping together. Um, and, uh, you know, last time I was here as well, I got to, to know a couple of you or talk to a couple of you. So I also, you know, after the, the sermon, I look forward to talking to some of you as well again and maybe get to know uh, some of you for the first time. Well, my wife, Rebecca, she's not a morning person. <laughs> She'd probably say the same about me, especially lately. Uh, but for most of our, our marriage, I've actually been the one to get up first and, and make her coffee. Uh, and if you're feeling any tension right now, she, I, she gave me permission to say this. So, uh, In terms of joy and sunshine, though, my wife, uh, she has me beat, by far. If you had to pick one of us to spend time with, pick her. But not before 8 a.m. When I drive her to work in the morning, actually, uh, I've actually started this, uh, this new practice. Uh, it's been a few months now. Uh, and it's been working really well. So some of that joy and that sunshine, just to try and pull it out of her. Uh, I started actually singing to her in the morning. Or singing about her, actually. And I'm not um, particularly great at singing or improvising. Um, but I'll, I'll generally sing about how beautiful and how smart and how kind and how grumpy she is. <laughs> and and it'll, I'll get her smiling. I'll sing to her. And, you know, point out her strengths and good qualities. And, you know, if you wanted to look at it like in the best possible interpretation, I'm rejoicing in my wife. I'm exulting in my wife. And it actually works. There's this something sort of powerful and personal about song, isn't there? Even a silly song. That uh, not only do I manage, you know, most of the time to make her smile in the morning, but it also, you know, it kind of has that same effect on me as well. Well, in today's text as we heard, we see Mary visiting Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, she's, she's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she, she's recognizing the ways that God is working in, in Mary's life, and, and she's blessing her. And, and Mary responds with this song about God, magnifying and rejoicing in God for his saving work. And I'll say Mary's song is a lot more serious than my singing to my wife, but it, I mean, it actually it has quite an important history uh, in the church. Um, it's, it's known as the, the Magnificat, after this, the Latin translation of this song. And I'll, ju I'll just refer to it as Mary's song, though, for the rest of this morning. Uh, that'll be the end of the Latin. But first, you know, backing up a little bit, we've been going through the beginning of the book of Luke as we, as we go through Advent this year and as we, as we head towards Christmas. And in, in the first week, we heard about God, God's work in bringing John. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's parents, they were not likely to have a child, but, but God blesses them with John, who will one day pave the way for Jesus. And Zechariah, who is a, who's a priest of God, I mean, he doubts this when it's told to him, and, he, and he's actually, his voice is taken away for a time because of it. And last week, we have God coming to Mary, and she's told she will bear a child, even though she's still a virgin. And this child will be Jesus, the promised one. And Mary, she, she believes right away. The young Israelite woman has more faith than the priest of God. 
And this week, these two stories, they just kind of bump together. Mary, she goes to visit Elizabeth, probably practically to help her out in that, in that last part of, of pregnancy, and, and of pregnancy with John. And both Elizabeth and the unborn baby John, they react to this, this amazing thing that God's doing in Mary's life. They, they react with joy that God is bringing the Savior to be born as a human, to live as a human, and to die in the place of sinners, to, to reconcile them with himself. But before we get into this, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here today to worship you. And, and I, I pray as we, as we look at your word this morning, that in particular about this song that, that Mary has sung about you, that you would, you would draw us closer to yourself. And I pray that you would keep my words faithful and that your, your Holy Spirit would be present, helping us to receive what you have for us today. And give us the faith to respond rightly to, to all that you've done and all that you continue to do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we dive into the text this morning of, of Mary visiting Elizabeth and, and singing this song and rejoicing in God, I'd like to look at this passage through three, three different lenses. Uh, the first, trusting in God. And, and then the second one, God's blessing. God's blessings. And then the third, responding in joy. Trusting God, God's blessings, and responding in joy. Well, first, let's look at the text through this, this lens of trusting God. Elizabeth is, is filled with the Holy Spirit. She starts to bless Mary for what God is doing in her life. It's interesting, too, isn't it, by the way, that, um, that Elizabeth just kind of knows that, uh, that Mary is the mother of Jesus? At this point, I doubt there would be you know, external signs that Mary was pregnant. If, if, uh, just charting it out a little bit, if Elizabeth is six months pregnant... Then Gabriel visits Mary and tells her that she will conceive and bear Jesus. And then she goes and visits Elizabeth, stays about three months till John's birth. There probably isn't a baby bump broadcasting the situation quite yet. Mary's blessed for her faith, though. As Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believes that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I mean, she's, she's anticipating this thing that you can't even really see yet. So what does Mary's trusting God look like in this, in this situation? It looks like faith. It looks like believing God and taking him at his word. I mean, there are, there are some Christians today, and this might have been touched on uh, in, in these last couple Advent sermons, they make Mary out to be a lot more than she is. For example, I mean, it's not entirely uncommon to hear Mary referred to as uh, sinless or as a, a, a virgin, a perpetual virgin. Neither of those are really quite true. That being said, she's an example of great faith in this passage. She says, generations will call me blessed. And yeah, that's, that's definitely true. So it's worth emphasizing again as well, that because Luke, he clearly is contrasting Zechariah and Mary, that this young Israelite woman has greater faith than Zechariah. She hears from the angel Gabriel and she believes pretty well immediately. She hears that Elizabeth, who's advanced in years, is going to have a child, 
And she basically gets up right away and to go visit her. Just, just gets up and goes. No, no doubt that it's a hallucination or some kind of mistake. Just belief in what she has heard from God. And so if you put yourself with, with me in Mary's shoes for a second here, scholars generally agree she was probably quite young, maybe 14. She's visited by an angel who speaks to her about miraculously conceiving the Son of God. And from the everyday perspective, it's, it's going to look like she, she's having this child outside of marriage. She's conceived this child outside of marriage. It's going to look really sketchy. And Mary goes to Elizabeth, and she, she humbly accepts the blessing she's given. When, she's, when she says, behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, she actually isn't saying that from our perspective. She's not looking through, through 2,000 years of church history and the, and the fully realized gospel of Jesus Christ. She's been told something that is basically unbelievable from where she's standing, and she believes. She believes that she will give birth to the Messiah, that generations later, people will still know who she is. And she's believing all this in some, some small backwater part of some tiny nation. It's tiny nation of Israel. And, and I would ask, you know, if your faith in God looks like Mary's, but I'm, I won't ask, because my faith definitely doesn't. And I'd hazard a guess that it, it doesn't for the majority of us, the majority of us Christians. But as we look back through, you know, these, these 2,000 years of history, and we, and we call her blessed from, for her faith, I, th- I think there's something we can, we can learn from that. What does it look like to trust God? Believing his words. Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard how God created all things? And, and though the world has fallen into sin, he has sent Jesus to live and to die in the place of people who are fallen in sin. And that he reconciles those people to God. He restores a relationship that was shattered. Have you believed that? Have you trusted in that way? What's your relationship like with the word of God? With the Bible? There are, there are things in here, uh, in here that, are, that are quite complicated and hard to understand. I struggle with it as a, as a theology student. But there's also a lot of really clear essentials, really clear. If you've read some of the Bible, or if you've, uh, you've heard preaching or teaching on the Bible, what, what's your disposition towards it? Is it doubt? Faith? Belief? I definitely don't want to stand up here and, and, and sound like I've got it all figured out and, and never have any doubts. This, this, that wouldn't be true. Um, this is a challenge for all of us. You know, like, as I read the scriptures, as I, as I pray, I, I want to be more like Mary here in this. To hear what God says and to just believe it. To just, just believe it. Just act on it right away. Not think it over and doubt. Thank goodness perfect faith isn't the standard. Thankfully, we can, we can be like the man in Mark's gospel who says to Jesus, I believe Help my unbelief. Like, I mean, we see with Zechariah too. Imperfect faith, it doesn't get in the way of God working. So also, looking from a bit of a different angle at, at trusting God, uh, there's this idea of fearing God that comes up in Mary's song here. Trusting God in fear. 
And, and in verse 50, he says, or she says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And, and I'll unpack this a little bit. Uh, because if you're, if you're new to the church, this whole idea of fearing God, it might seem really weird to you. And, and even if this idea of fearing God is something that you're, you're familiar with, you might still be wondering, like, what does that actually have to do with trusting God? So first, <clears throat> what does that mean to fear God? I'm just quickly about myself. To the best of my knowledge, I hadn't stepped foot in a church until I was about 18 um, or so. I, I, I actually remember encountering this, this fear of God concept and finding it, yeah, really weird. Maybe for those of us who actually grew up in the church, it's not as weird. I was actually helping out in Sunday school. I think it might have been about a month ago. And this question came up. What does it mean to fear God? And there was a, there was a young girl, maybe grade five or six. And she gave a, she gave a pretty good definition. To fear God is to, is to respect him. It's to be in awe of him. That's kind of the essence of it. If you're like me, and as you're, as you're coming to Christianity and as you're thinking about it, uh, maybe it isn't so much like fear and justice that you struggle to understand, but love and mercy, that's where the struggle is. I, I know it's something I struggle to grasp. The love of God, the idea that, that God actually, actually loves me personally, that, that he has forgiven me personally. If that's you too, know that the fear of God, it has actually more to do with recognizing God as God, with recognizing who we are and where we are in, in kind of relationship to God than it has to being scared about punishment or something like that. So how do we fear God? We see him for who he is more accurately. And in seeing who God is in relation to us, we put on that kind of disposition of awe, of respect. I mean, Mary says in the beginning of her song that her soul magnifies the Lord. And if you're using a different translation this morning, as we were reading, it might say something like uh, exalts or glorifies. And that's, that's the flavor here. I've heard it, uh, an analogy in the past, and it, it might have been John Piper. It's the uh, telescope microscope sort of analogy. If you magnify something with a microscope, you're taking something really small and you're making it bigger than it is to see the details. But with a, with a telescope, you take something that's big, something that's far away, and you start to see it as it really is. We magnify God like this. We exalt him. We glorify him. And when we see God like this, who are we? We're humble servants. We're small. Have you, have you been to any, any big historical landmarks or uh, works of culture? Something like the, the Grand Canyon or the, the Roman Colosseum? There's this the silly picture I have from when I was, I was 16 and I was actually visiting Rome. I was, I was thinking of putting it up on the screen, but I don't think I could handle the embarrassment. Um, in the picture, uh, I'm, I'm flexing and I'm pointing to my bicep while there's the Roman Colosseum behind me. There's this huge ancient structure with all of this history behind me. And here I am just in this picture, caught in this moment of self-absorption, just... Usually, though, usually, you know, it's kind of hard to, to, to see something like the Colosseum or the Grand Canyon or um, something like that and not come away feeling small. 
And that's where, actually, that's where I think this passage gets really cool. Because God's mercy is for those who fear him. As Mary sings, for those who stand before him and are in awe of him, at who he is, for those who feel like a speck of dust in his presence, that's where mercy comes in. Do you feel like God is too high, too great, too far off to care about you or forgive you? This is actually good news for you. There's this, there's this phrase that comes up in the Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you feel too small for God, you're not far away from mercy. You're actually really close. If you look at what Luke has written, God doesn't, God doesn't exalt the rich or those who have high status. He's exalting the humble, the weak, the poor. Here he is bringing the Son of God, the promised Messiah of Israel, through a young Israelite woman. The Savior doesn't make his first appearance in power, but in humility, as an infant. In fact, in our text today, you have John the Baptist, you know, not even born yet, leaping in the womb and announcing the coming Messiah. The Messiah isn't being announced by kings and queens, but by a little unborn baby. Trust comes in when we realize God for who he is. We see ourselves as we really are in comparison with him. And we know that God saves the weak and the small. God uses the weak and the small. We don't have to, to rely on ourselves or think that uh, we can make it all happen. Back to the, the, the telescope microscope analogy. When we're fixated on ourselves, we've magnified something and made it look bigger than it is. We've looked at something small and we've made it look big. But when, when we, what we need to do is we need to aim that telescope at God and make him as big as he really is. So like, do you feel a fear of God that is, is more crushing? It's more judgment than love? I mean, take that, that small step to trusting him in your fear. It, it's, a, it's a small reorientation, but I, it makes all the difference here. So... Moving, moving on kind of from this, this, this look at attitude towards God, the way we trust him in both faith and fear, the second lens I want to look at this passage with you this morning, it's the lens of God's blessing. And specifically, God's blessing of mercy and faithfulness. Elizabeth calls Mary blessed a couple times here. Because, blessed because she is the mother of the Messiah and because she believed what the Lord promised her. So, Looking at mercy, as we just looked at, God's mercy is for those who fear him. And as you read through Mary's song here, the mercy of God is kind of, it's kind of popping out of every verse. Not just God's mercy to Mary in particular, but the way that Mary speaks of God helping the humble. He has exalted those of humble estate and, and filled the hungry with good things. Does God leave the weak alone? Does he neglect the hungry or the poor? And before digging deeper into this, I'd like to kind of quickly touch on an objection that some might have. I suppose in one might sense you might, or one sense you might say, um, yeah, God does neglect the, the poor, the weak, the humble. There are, there are real people struggling to eat, struggling to pay rent, 
We don't even have to think of, of poverty in terms of foreign nations. Maybe this is, this is you, and it's a legitimate struggle to, to see God's mercy when your, your bank account is like permanently in overdraft. I mean, it's tough stuff. And I, and I definitely don't want to minimize these things, these kind of questions, these kind of doubts. And I think, but, but, I think, taken in the context of what God has to say to us in, in the whole of the Bible, there isn't a promise of physical prosperity or comfort in the now. And if you can just follow me for a second here. You've got Mary and nobody from Israel, pregnant with Jesus, who will one day reconcile his people to God. Reconciling Israel, not only Israel, people of every nation. All of, all of creation is, is affected by sin. This, this perfect creation has been marred. It's been corrupted. And God is working out redemption. In today's text, Jesus has he's been around maybe three months in Mary's womb. Fast forward a few decades, you've got him dying for the sins of his people. You've got him taking on the punishment that sin deserves. He dies for sinners and he reconciles them. He brings them to God. But that isn't the end of the story. If you remember last year during Advent, we had this, this thought that just kept coming up again and again. He has come once. He will come again. We're in this in-between time. And when Jesus returns in glory, that's when we get the real physical fulfillment of God's mercy. That's when, that's when there will be no more, no more tears. That's when there will be no more suffering. So, digression. Back to the original question. Does God leave the weak, the hungry, and the poor alone? No. No. When Mary says in her song... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She points to this. God is Mary's Savior personally. Mary has faith that God will be merciful to her, and that he's, he's, her, he's her Savior, even though Jesus isn't even born yet. It, 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 is this something you resonate with? Paul, he says it in the book of Galatians. This is something that's it's often uh, spoken to me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus? Do you believe, not just that he existed, not, that, not just that he died for sin, was, not just that he was crucified to save others, but that he loved you and he gave himself for you. Maybe you're, you're mostly on board, but not fully. I remember talking uh, with one of my best friends about God after I be first became a Christian. Uh, this, was over, this was over a decade ago, and I'm actually really still blessed to call him one of my best friends. He sent me a really encouraging text message this morning, actually. So this was, uh, yeah, about a decade ago, and we're hanging out in, in Mrs. Van Stock's uh, foods room at lunchtime. And... Uh, he told me that he believed in God, but he didn't believe that God could forgive him for all the things that he had done. I mean, it's often talked about, but there are, this is a, a real belief. This is a real struggle. And, and I knew him pretty well, and I, I knew he had done some pretty bad things, definitely some pretty bad things. But here's mercy. God intervened in his life in that next year, and, and he came to faith. 
To this day, he has one of the most powerful testimonies I've ever heard. On screens, on the internet, anywhere. Most powerful testimonies I've ever heard. And I'd actually would be happy to talk with you a bit more about it afterwards, um, if you'd like. So, so what do you do if you believe in God, but you're at this place? Salvation makes sense, but not for you. There's this, there's this great text in Acts where Peter speaks with Cornelius. He's um, someone who might have been the, the first non-Jewish follower of Jesus. And Peter says to him, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And I've always loved the language of the King James Version in this text. God is no respecter of persons. I love that. You don't need to be a rich member of the congregation who's tithing more than most people make in a year. I'll, I'll put it as crudely as that. You don't have to be that to get to heaven. You don't need to be a pastor. You don't need to have the right last name. You don't need to be smart. You don't need any of that. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't care about that stuff. Fear him. See him as he is. Trust him. And this is what is so powerful about the good news, about the gospel. God sent his son, Jesus, as a savior. He came to save sinners. Are you a sinner? This is for you. Do you need help? This is for you. It isn't about, about giving what's deserved. It's about mercy. God the Father sent God the Son. He sent Jesus Christ to bring about mercy. Even if you, you don't consider yourself a Christian, you probably heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This, this is how God loved the world. This is the way God loved the world. He gave his Son that those who trust in him will have eternal life. And all of us, I mean, all of us, we have eternity just before us, looking in front of us. Whether it's eternal life or eternal death, that kind of hinges on, on this, on the mercy of God in Jesus. Well, having focused on, on God's blessing of mercy, the other side of that, the, the other side I'd like to narrow in on a little bit is, is the blessing, blessing of, of faithfulness. Going back to what Elizabeth, she says to Mary, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary was blessed because she believed God. She believed in a fulfillment. She believed there would be, there would be follow through. We trust in God, believing his words and, and seeing him for who he is, and we look to him for mercy, yet at the end of the day, trust and anticipation of mercy doesn't mean a whole lot if God isn't faithful, if he will not follow through with what he says. And I'm, I'm not sure how familiar Mary would have been with the, the Old Testament. She probably would have heard a whole lot of it growing up. Um, but she clearly understood a fair bit, even if she wasn't as well-versed as, a, as a, a theological giant like Paul. Nevertheless, she, she was probably familiar with the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 7.9. I'll read it out to you. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Is God faithful? Yeah, he is. 
He keeps covenant and steadfast love. God doesn't break covenant. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't break his promises. And, he, and his love doesn't fail. Not for a thousand generations. And that's not to say that, you know, there's a thousand generations and that's great for them, but man, that really sucks for that thousand and first generation. It's, Moses is, he's not being real literal, real specific. The point is that God's faithfulness, it extends forever, all generations. And as we look at, at Mary's song, she speaks of God like this. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God had in the past covenanted with Abraham some 2,000 years before Mary. It speaks this song. And God promised to give Abraham land and to, through his offspring, uh, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And in that text, here we have, we have Mary, uh, soon to give birth to Jesus, who is a, a descendant of David, a descendant of Abraham. And, and Jesus is the Messiah, the one the Jewish, Jewish nation, they were looking forward to. And the one who would end up blessing all the nations on the earth. I've got a little bit convoluted there with names and dates. The basic point is this, God keeps his promises forever. He's faithful. I mean, Jesus was, he was promised ever since uh, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And you have this promise of the one who would crush the head of the serpent. We can trust that he isn't going to just leave us in our sin. And we can trust that he's, he's going to make all things right. So what should our response be then to all of this? In faith and fear, we, we trust in God. We look to him as, as the faithful and the trustworthy one, the one who will have mercy on us and save us. Well, lastly, let's look at this passage through the lens of responding in joy. You have, you have Elizabeth pronouncing these things, these blessings on Mary. And what does she do? She breaks out in this song, this hymn, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So if we've, you know, if we've experienced God's grace in our lives, I think Mary is, a, is an appropriate model of response here. We, we respond in joy for God's work in ourselves. For how he has had mercy on us, even if what we really deserve was hell itself. Now you, you might not, again, buy into any of this. Or you might consider yourself maybe more of an agnostic. Or maybe you're still exploring what faith actually looks like. Uh, faith in God looks like to you. And, and so maybe you're finding this, this uh, responding in joy a little bit alienating. This doesn't, really, this doesn't really apply to you. Maybe that's what you're thinking. But I'm glad you're here today. And I think it actually does apply to you. And if you'd like to talk to me more about it after, I would love to talk. There's something wrong in here, in all of us. Sin, transgression, disobedience, brokenness, call it whatever you will. Whatever word you use from it, or use for it, we've turned from God. And that's, that's where things have gotten really, gone really wrong. But God is merciful. He's faithful. And in Jesus, he's made a way out of this mess. In Jesus, there's hope of reconciliation. 
There's a hope of a future without any more internal struggle of that war within. Believe the good news. Take it for yourself. Trust in God. This response, it's, it's there waiting for you. The response of worship, of rejoicing in God the Savior. And if you have trusted in God, if that's you, you've, you've found your heart has grown maybe a little bit dull lately, consider what God has done for you. I love the old hymn, Come Thou Fount. And that line near the end, it, I mean, it really describes my experience here. We're prone to wander. We forget what God has done for us, and we lose some of that zeal, some of that, that passion that maybe we once felt. We forget what God has done for us, and we lose it. And I wish there was some kind of magic practice or some sort of magic bullet that just brought us right back, worshiping God perfectly, brought back some of that new zeal. I haven't found it yet. If you have, please tell me. <laughs> but I found what Mary does here. It really helps. It's a bit of a slow course correction, but it helps. We worship God. We remember the things he's done, the things he's shown, and who he is. And yeah, it just it brings us back, it steers us back to rejoicing in God. <clears throat> and as much as this passage, I mean, it can help us to respond in joy to God for how he's worked in us, I don't want to neglect the fact that it's also about responding to what he's done in others. God's work in others. I mean, think of Elizabeth's blessing on Mary. How happy she is for what God is doing for Mary. Think of little unborn baby John leaping for joy inside Elizabeth's womb. And even think about how Mary doesn't just focus on herself in this song, but speaks of God's mercy in the lives of others and in the lives of Israel. We might, uh, we might respond for, in joy for what God is doing in us, but we can, also, we can also model Elizabeth and John and Mary here in seeing God's work in others. I mean, really, if it comes down to it, God gets the credit. He's the one doing it. He's the one doing the work. We respond in joy wherever we find it, you know, wherever, whether in ourselves or others. So, and you know, I'm speaking here to, to those who've maybe been Christians for a while. Have you ever seen someone come to Christ and they just, they're just on fire for God? They're just on fire. Maybe at something like an alpha course or maybe you, you shared the gospel with someone and, and man, God just... God just got a hold of their heart. Maybe you've had the same experience as me. That joy, it can be really infectious. How, how God works in someone's life. How God can just completely take someone and just pluck them out and just completely change the direction of their lives through Jesus. Just completely change everything. How could you be anything but encouraged by that? And if you're finding yourself a little dull of heart, as I, I do sometimes, if you're course correcting as best as you can, as I am, maybe this is another tool in the toolbox to restore that joy. Spend some time with new Christians. See what God is up to in their lives. I mean, spend time with anybody and see what God is up to in, in anyone's lives. Let's be about this, about worshiping God for who he is and, and what he's doing, what he's really doing in the world. About magnifying God magnifying the Lord among us, 
so that we can all like share and see what he's doing together, see who he really is. So, as, as we close, I want to emphasize again this thread that's kind of been throughout this passage, throughout the season even. I mean, N.T. Wright, he says about Mary's song here that it's the gospel before the gospel. A fierce, bright shout of triumph 30 weeks before Bethlehem, 30 years before Calvary and Easter. It goes with a swing and a clap and a stamp. It's all about God and it's all about revolution and it's all because of Jesus. So where do we find the mercy of God? We find it in Jesus. In his life and death for us when we were undeserving. Where do we find the correct fear of God? Not scared of him, but seeing him as he really is. We find it in Jesus, who's a friend of sinners. Who ate with the lowest of the low. And who humbled himself to our level so he could raise us to God. Where do, we, where do we find our faith? We find it in him who stands before God, faithful on our behalf. And who can say, like, and we can say, you know, I believe. Help my unbelief. Where do we find the faithfulness of God? We find it in Jesus. Who, in loyalty to promise and love of his people, he went to the cross on our behalf. He died on our behalf. And, who will, and he, he'll return to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. To restore creation to what it was always meant to be. As we, as we continue through this Advent season, looking ahead to Christmas and to, the, and to the birth of our Savior, let's rejoice in him. Yeah? Let's, let's look to what he's doing in our lives and in the lives of those throughout the world, throughout history, and let's respond in worship to him.